You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Currently on Sunday mornings, we are studying through Paul's letter to the Philippians in our series called The Pursuit of Happiness. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today with with eager hearts, hearts eager to learn, hearts eager to seek you, hearts eager to press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we pray that today you would speak to us through your word. Would you give us ears to hear? Lord, would we have receptive hearts, we ask, and that the things that we hear and talk about today, they wouldn't just be theories and ideas, but they would be things which translate into real and practical change in our lives for our good and for your glory. And Lord, we ask that you do a work in our hearts today as we study your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of our series is The Pursuit of Happiness. In 2006, there was a movie which came out uh, starring Will Smith, which was also called The Pursuit of Happiness. But uh, I don't know how many of you remember, I know this, that they spelled happiness wrong. They uh, spelled it with a Y instead of an I. So that's the only big difference between that title and the title of our series. But there's a line in that film where Will Smith's character... He says this, Thomas Jefferson, on the Declaration of Independence, talked about our right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I wonder how it was that he knew to put that pursuit part in there. Maybe happiness is something that we can only ever pursue and maybe never actually have. Here in this series, we've been talking about how all people desire joy. We desire this deep, abiding sense of happiness and satisfaction. And yet, for many people, this evades them. They feel like Will Smith's character in that movie felt, that maybe happiness is something which, although we desire it deep down, and although we pursue it all of our lives, it is something which maybe can never actually be found. And what an, in- what an incredibly discouraging thought that is. To think that all of our lives are spent in the pursuit of something which we will never find, which we will never attain, which we will never take hold of, that all of our efforts, all of our sweat, all of our toil, all of our work, all of the emotional energy that we expend in this pursuit of happiness is all in vain because ultimately we're chasing after something which we will never be able to take hold of. But the Bible says that that is not how it is, that there is a different way, and that true and lasting joy, the happiness which we desire, the joy which we believe that we are made for, it is something which can be attained, and, it, and the Bible tells us how we can take hold of it. And this is the major theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And what is particularly interesting is the context in which this letter was written. Paul didn't write this letter from the Miami Beach Marriott Hotel. He didn't write it from Disneyland. He didn't write it from a mansion being waited upon by a team of servants. No, interestingly, this letter, which is all about joy and this overwhelming joy, which is bigger than any circumstance you might ever face in your life, where did Paul write it from? He wrote it from jail. He wrote it from jail where he was chained 24 hours a day to Roman guards, where he had no privacy, where he couldn't leave this room that he was in, and where he's awaiting trial where he could likely be facing execution. And yet in spite of those dire circumstances, Paul writes to instruct us 
about how to have true and lasting joy. Despite his circumstances, he had that joy, and he wants to tell us how we can have that joy as well. And what we've learned so far in this study is that the only source of true and lasting joy is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did for you. However, in addition to this source of joy, which is only the gospel, there are also certain practices, there are certain attitudes which we can have, which we can implement, which will help us to experience this joy in increasing ways, in greater ways. And there are also other things that are enemies of joy. In our text today, Paul is going to point out to us three enemies of joy, and those are complacency, living in the past, and only thinking about the here and now. Complacency, living in the past, and only thinking about the here and now. And then he's going to show us how the gospel equips us to avoid these pitfalls and live increasingly in experiencing this joy that comes from knowing Jesus. So the title of this message is pressing on. And here's what we're going to see in this section for you note takers and you outline likers. Here's, what, here's our outline. Number one, we're going to talk about dissatisfaction and why you need it. Dissatisfaction and why you need it. Secondly, we're going to talk about this. Race cars don't have backup cameras. Race cars don't have backup cameras. That's a fact. Number three, the third thing is this. What if you knew the future? What if you knew the future? How would that change things? So first of all, let's talk about dissatisfaction and why you need it. Last week, we left off in our study with Paul talking about how he had come to understand the gospel. Come to understand that he wasn't saved. He wasn't made right with God. He wasn't accepted by God based on the things that he did. Based on his accomplishments. Based on his religious performance even. But that it was on the basis of what Jesus had done for him. And Paul says when he came to understand that, what it did is it gave him a whole new perspective, a whole new outlook, a whole new approach to life. No more would he live for the praise of other people. No more would he strive to attain other people's acceptance because he understood that because of what Jesus did for him, he was accepted by God. And so now the sole focus of his life is going to be this. He says in, in verse 10 of the section we read last week, he says, Now my goal in life is this. I want to know him. I want to know God. I want to know Jesus. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. He says, I want to know this one who would love me this much that he would leave heaven, that he would trade glory for shame in order to save me. I want to know him. I want to know him personally. I don't just want to know about him. I want to know about him personally. I want to experience the power of his resurrection at work in my life. And then he says this. This is where we pick up in chapter 3, verse 12. But it's not that I have already obtained nor have I already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And let those who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. The dictionary defines complacency as a smug satisfaction. Smug satisfaction. It's when you look at your life and you say, meh, good enough. Smug satisfaction with where you're at, with what you've attained. It's, it's an acceptance of the status quo. It says, I know enough. I've come far enough. I've done enough. I'm doing well enough. I don't need to try harder or go further. 
I'm fine with where I'm at. Complacency is an enemy of joy. And here's why. Because complacency halts growth. And in order to be experiencing the joy which comes from the gospel, we've always got to be growing, moving forward, making progress. And complacency halts that. Paul here in these verses, he expresses a healthy sense of dissatisfaction with where he's at. He's happy with what Jesus has done for him, but yet he wants more of it in his life. He wants to go deeper in his knowledge of God. He wants to go farther in experiencing God's work in his life. Let me tell you this. One of the important keys to experiencing joy in the Lord is this. Having a healthy sense of dissatisfaction with where you are at right now. F.B. Meyer once said this. He said, Dissatisfaction lies at the heart of all of our noblest achievements. Dissatisfaction lies at the heart of all of our noblest achievements. If you think about it, all of our technological advancements, they've happened because people are dissatisfied with the way things are. We have airplanes because people were tired of going by land and going by sea, and they said, I want to see if I can fly in the air. That would be much better. So they created airplanes. And and we've got dams, we've got air conditioning, we've got mobile devices. All of the things that we have, technological advances, are the result of people being dissatisfied with how things are, and so they went out and invented stuff. It takes dissatisfaction with where you're at to motivate people to live a healthier lifestyle, for example. All of our growth, all of our noblest achievements begin with a healthy sense of dissatisfaction. It has been said that dissatisfaction is the mother of progress. It's only when you get fed up with the way things are that you are motivated to do something about it. And it's interesting that Paul says this right here. Because in the previous section, what Paul was talking about was how in the past he had tried to earn God's acceptance by being exceedingly religious. But when he came to understand the gospel, when he came to understand that it's not by what he does, but it's because of what Jesus did for him, that that's the reason God accepts him. When he understood that, he renounced his efforts to earn God's favor, to earn God's love. He embraced the grace of God with thankfulness in his heart that he could now finally rest from trying to earn something He could have never earned anyway. But then right after that, right after talking about how he is now resting in the gospel, then he says this, but I press on. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. I'm going to strive with everything that's in me to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. He says, I'm putting in real effort into knowing God, into experiencing his work in my life. How much effort did he put in? Here's how much effort. He put in as much effort as an Olympic athlete. In verse 14, he says, I press on for the goal, for the prize. That word prize is a specific word which referred to the prize given to an Olympic athlete who won a race. Paul is saying as much effort as an Olympic athlete puts into training for the Olympics, that's how much effort I am putting into pursuing God and living for him. Have you ever seen these Olympic athletes and how they train? It's intense. They're a little crazy, right? They're on strict diets. They weigh their food on scales. They're very careful about what they put into their bodies. 
They make sure that they get enough rest. They make sure that everything they do helps them rather than hurts them in their ability to run that race. And they're never satisfied with where they're at. They're always trying to get better, always trying to get stronger. So how much effort does Paul put into his Christian life? Here's how much. As much as an Olympic athlete training for a race. And so how do these two go together? On the one hand, Paul is resting in what Jesus did for him. And yet on the other hand, Paul is straining forward to what lies ahead of him. So the question is, is Christianity about resting in what Jesus has done for us? Or is it about pursuing what lies ahead of us? And the answer is, it's both. Our pursuit of God, our desire to serve God with our lives, it isn't about earning. That's very important to understand. It's not about earning, it's about responding. It's about responding to what he has done for us. And here's the thing about joy. When you find joy in something, when you find satisfaction in something, here's what joy produces in you when you find it. On the one hand, it produces satisfaction. Satisfaction in that thing. But on the other hand, when you find satisfaction in something, it produces in you a dissatisfaction with the fact that you don't have more of that thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever found something that you really loved? Something that you loved, you found it really great, and it produces in you, on the one hand, satisfaction. On the other hand, dissatisfaction. Satisfaction in the thing itself and dissatisfaction in the fact that you don't have more of it. That there's a limited amount that you want more. That's what Paul's talking about here. In coming to understand the gospel, Paul has discovered Jesus to be his all-satisfying greatest treasure. And as a result, he feels dissatisfied that he doesn't have more of it in his life, more of him in his life. And that healthy sense of dissatisfaction is what motivates him, which keeps him pressing on, looking for more, moving forward, going deeper as a Christian. What we see here in Paul is not a sense of complacency, but quite the opposite, a sense of passion. He's got the eye of the tiger. You're going to hear him roar. He wants to know God more. He's got fire in his bones. He wants his life to be used by God in greater ways. Let me ask you, do you have that healthy sense of dissatisfaction with where you're at in your relationship with God? Or are you content with where you're at? I'll tell you this, growth is a requirement for joy. And that's why complacency is an enemy of joy. In order to experience joy in an increasing way, you need to have a healthy sense of dissatisfaction with where you're at, which drives you to pursue God, to move forward, and to pursue the life that he has called you to. If you think about it, the gospel is really the story of God's dissatisfaction. Do you understand that? That the gospel is the story of God's dissatisfaction. It's that God was dissatisfied with the way things were. God was dissatisfied with the condition that you were in. He was dissatisfied with the status quo. He was dissatisfied that you were lost, that you were spiritually dead, that you were separated from him. And he was dissatisfied with the fact that you did not know him and that you were destined for judgment. He was dissatisfied with these things because he loves you. He was so dissatisfied, in fact, that he did something about it. He took practical steps to change it. He went to great lengths, even the greatest length of sacrificing himself for you in order to change the way that things were. And the message of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did on your behalf, now God is satisfied with you. And when you really understand what that means, when that really takes hold of your heart, you cannot help but respond by saying what Paul said. He is so good that I will not be satisfied until I have more of him in my life. I want to take hold of everything 
for which he has taken hold of me. And so here's what Paul does. He says, one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I press on, I strain forward to what lies ahead. And that brings us to our second point, which is this. Race cars don't have backup cameras. Now I uh, did some some research on Google. I'm not a big NASCAR fan. I don't know if any of you guys are, but I'm, I'm not really into NASCAR. Uh, I think Formula One's kind of interesting, but uh, I did some research, though, on NASCAR, and I found out this. Race cars don't have backup cameras, and I also found out that not only do race cars not have backup cameras, but race cars don't have rear view mirrors at all. In fact, you know those wing mirrors on the side? They don't got them. They don't got that, you know, rear view mirror that you look at to see what's going on behind you. Now, why is that? Well, it's, it's obvious. When you're in a race, all that matters is what's in front of you. You have to keep your focus on what's in front of you. If you start looking at what's going on behind you, it's going to mess you up. You're going to veer out of your lane. You're going to slow down. You can't get distracted by what's going on behind you. In a race, whether you're running a race or whether you're uh, driving a car or whether you're riding a bike, if you look back, you know what happens to you? You slow down. You veer out of your lane. You could even crash you could even go off the track completely. And the same is true in our lives. If we are living, as Paul has suggested, pursuing the God who pursued us, striving to live our lives wholly for him, then we can't be looking backwards. We've got to keep our focus on what is ahead. You see, living in the past is an enemy of joy. And there are plenty of things in your past which are tempting to get focused on. Not only the bad things, but even the good things. Not only the failures, but also the successes. If you live in the past, it is an enemy of joy. And, and so here are some of the things that we are tempted to focus on in our past. Past failures. Anybody resound with that? Sins you have committed that haunt you. Mistakes that you have made. Things that you regret. Another one is past hurts. Not only the bad things that you have done, but the bad things that people have done to you. Painful things that have happened to you in the past. People that hurt you. You know, if there's anyone who, who could have been crippled by his past, both by his past sins and by his past pain and hurt, it was Paul the Apostle. Do you think Paul the Apostle struggled sometimes with feelings of condemnation over the things that he had done in the past? He had helped people be killed for their faith. He had coerced people into renouncing their faith in Jesus. Do you think that he ever felt kind of a residual condemnation for that? I think so. I think he struggled with that all the time. I think when he closed his eyes, he could see the faces of people that he had done things to and he regretted it. It haunted him. You see, the devil loves to rub our nose in things which God has already forgiven. Paul had also been very hurt by Christians. After having become a Christian, he had been very hurt in many ways by other Christians. But what was Paul's attitude? What was his approach to these things? Both his own past failings and the pain which had been inflicted upon him by others. He, here's what it was. He said, I forget about it. I forget about it. I don't let it control me. I don't let it own me. I move forward. I don't have a backup camera on my race car. He says, all these things, my own sins, the sins committed against me, I know they are buried under the cross of Calvary, that Jesus took those sins. He bore them, both the sins that I committed and the sins committed against me. They're buried under the cross of Calvary. They've been cast into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. They've been cast away as far as the east is from the West, and so there's no need for me to continue dredging them up and dwelling on them. But see, it's not only our past sins and past hurts that can tempt us to live stuck in the past. 
even our past joys, even our past successes. There are some people who live in the glory of things which happened 10, 20, 30, even 40 years ago. I don't know if you've met these people. They're the people who are still talking about how they threw four touchdowns in one game for poke high, right? These are the people who are still riding on their past successes, their past joys, but they're not doing anything now. They're not moving forward now. But rather than relaxing and resting on our laurels, what we are to be doing is reloading and going out to fight the next fight. One of the keys to experiencing joy in our lives is to develop what we might call a selective spiritual amnesia. Develop a selective spiritual amnesia. And the reason it's selective is because we don't want to forget everything. We, we want to remember the good things that God has done. Because in moments of difficulty, it's remembering God's faithfulness in the past, which gives you courage to face the future. So we remember the great things that God has done, but we also move forward to the next thing that God has in front of us. See, race cars don't have backup cameras because if you're focused on what's going on behind you, it causes you to slow down. It causes you to even veer off course. So what's the solution? The solution is to embrace the cross. The solution is to look to the cross, to embrace the fact that it is finished. Jesus suffered and he died for all the sins you've committed and the sins which have been committed against you. And you don't have to suffer them anymore. It's embracing the cross and saying, what happened in the past was great, but God has something also for me. The best is yet to come in the future. And so you shift your focus from the past to what lies ahead in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to verse 15. We read this. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Let us hold true to what we have attained. And this brings us to our final point, which is this. What if you knew the future? Have you ever considered how much differently you would know, you would live, if you knew the future, if you knew what the end would be of certain decisions, of certain paths that you take in life? The third enemy of joy, which Paul points out in this section, is Thinking only about the here and now. Being only mindful of the here and now and not of the future. Verse 17, we read this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example which you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. If you knew the future, do you think it would change the way that you live today? Absolutely, it's not even a question. If, if it were possible to know how a certain path would end up, where it would lead you, then it would be much easier to reject certain things and to choose other things, other options, other paths in life. What Paul is telling us here is that there are indeed some things which we do know with certainty about the future, and those things that we do know with certainty about the future should change, should affect the way that we live here and now. Here's the first thing we know. First of all, we know that heaven and hell are real and that not everybody's going to heaven. Heaven and hell are real and not everybody's going to heaven. Paul says that there are some people whose end is destruction because they are enemies of the cross. 
What an incredible thing it is to have that said of you, that, that you are an enemy. You have made yourself an enemy of the one and only thing by which you can be saved. He tells us, these people, their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. They're only living for the here and now. And Paul says, it's through tears that I tell you this. He's not gloating. He's, he's grieved by this. He's not saying, hey, we're going to heaven and those guys aren't, so take that, right? No, he's not gloating at all. He says, it's through tears that I say this to you. I saw a sign, you know those uh, church signs that they get the church secretary to change out the letters on them, you know? I always thought if we had a building, then we are not going to have one of those because I think that that's part of the reason why, uh, part of the blame for declining church attendance is those church signs. They're such a terrible representation of what we are supposed to be about as Christians. Anyway, I saw one of these signs, another one which I was not very happy about, and it said this, if hell's a party, you're the barbecue. And I thought, that is terrible. No, that is the wrong tone. That is not the tone that we want to have. It's been said that like Paul, you should never talk about hell without tears in your eyes. Right? It's not gloating. It should grieve us that anyone would go to hell. And rather than gloating that other people are going to hell and we're not, we should be doing everything we can so that hell would be empty and heaven would be full. So that we could bring the message of life and salvation through Jesus to people. But here's the context of what Paul is talking about here. He's telling the Philippians to be careful about the kind of people they allow to influence their lives. He says, uh, it's, it's been said this way. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Let me say that again. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You see, the people that you surround yourself with, that's kind of like they become an advisory board for your life. And they will shape where you end up. So choose them wisely. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It seems that some of these Christians in Philippi were hanging around with people whose life was diametrically opposed to the cross of Christ. And rather than these Christians influencing those people towards faith in Jesus, the, the Christians were being negatively influenced in the opposite direction by those people. And the result was that their minds were more and more set on earthly things. It seems that these people, it seems that they had repeated contact with these people because Paul says, I've told you about this before. I've warned you about this. This isn't the first time we've had this talk, guys. And now I hear that you're back at it again. You're hanging out with those old friends from the old life. And every time you get around them, they drag you back into the old ways, glorying in things that are shameful, only thinking about earthly things. These are people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. Rather than you helping them come to know Jesus, they're influencing you in the opposite direction. And rather than them helping you to pursue God, they're dragging you backwards. You're not influencing them for Christ. They're influencing you. And this isn't good. And he says you need to be careful. You need to be careful who you give a role of strategic importance to in your life. Make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who encourage you to run towards this goal of knowing God and living for him. And Paul says, instead of following those guys, those guys who are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, I want to encourage you, follow me. If you're looking for somebody to follow, Paul says, follow me, imitate me. Follow the example of other Christian leaders that we have given you to follow. 
And you might say, well, isn't that arrogant, right? You're not supposed to say, follow me. You're supposed to say, well, don't follow me, follow Jesus. No, Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. He says, God put me in your life. God put me, other Christians too, in your life so that you could see what it looks like to follow him in all the different areas of your life. Now, this is important. It's something that I take seriously as a pastor. I don't want to just be here to tell you, do as I say. I want to be able to say with my life. I want to say, don't just do it. I say, do what I do. I want to be able to say, serve like I serve. Give like I give. Pray like I pray. You see, that's the way that Jesus led, isn't it? He said, pray like I pray. Serve like I serve. Give like I give. Any of you who have people in your life who look up to you, if you have kids, this is true for you as well. The same is true for you. Lead by example. Even lead by example when you make mistakes. I remember one of the things that one of my mentors taught me. He was talking about this idea of living life as an example. And this is what he said. He said, if you would follow me around for, for a day, you would be incredibly disappointed. You, you would see me do things and you'd wonder, why did he do that? You'd see me do things I shouldn't have done. You'd see me fail. You'd see me make mistakes. But then, after you'd been incredibly disappointed, you'd be incredibly impressed. Because you'd see me get on my knees. You'd see me pray. You'd see me repent. You'd see me turn back to God. You'd see me seek him and ask for grace and ask him to change me and help me to follow him. See, be an example for those who look up to you of what it looks like to have a repentant heart. In everything you do, live a life that's worthy of imitation. So be careful and be intentional about who you give those roles of strategic importance to in your life. Knowing the future affects how we live in the present. I want to read these last two verses to you again. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Philippi was unique amongst Roman cities in the Roman Empire because Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, not every city in the empire was a Roman colony. Here's what it meant to be a Roman colony. It meant that the people of Philippi, even though they lived 800 miles away from the city of Rome, they were citizens of the city of Rome. Now, not everybody in the Roman Empire was a citizen of Rome, and to be a citizen of Rome carried with it special privileges. Philippi was located in the province of Macedonia, which is in northern Greece. But because Philippi was a Roman colony, the people of Philippi followed the culture of Rome rather than the culture of Macedonia. It was kind of an outpost of Rome in the middle of Greece. And so Paul is tapping into this idea which the Philippians would have been very familiar with. He's drawing a parallel between that and what it means to be a Christian. He says, just as you live in Philippi, but are citizens of Rome, in the same way to be a Christian is to live on earth, but to be a citizen of heaven. To be a Christian is to be a resident alien living abroad on official state business. And rather than following the surrounding culture, we follow the culture of our homeland, our true homeland. See, in our homeland, there's a different culture than the one which is pervasive in the place where we live. In our homeland, there's the, the culture is that servants are the ones who are truly great. And it's those who forgive who are truly strong. We trust in God. We put him first. See, these are the things of the culture of our homeland. And even though we don't live there physically, we keep that culture. 
We are resident aliens living abroad on official state business. We are ambassadors of our homeland. And so we represent the values and the culture of heaven. And we tell people about our king and we invite them to also become citizens of this kingdom as well. Because this is the hope that we have as citizens of heaven. What Paul says here. The day is coming when our king will call us home. And when that happens, he will transform these lowly bodies to become like his glorious bodies. In other words, what we have now is only a shadow and only, only a hint, only a taste, only a glimpse of the reality which is to come. You see, if we know the future, it greatly affects how we live in the present. And this is true in regard to the pursuit of happiness, what we've been talking about throughout this whole series. You remember that quote I began with this morning from the movie with Will Smith where he said that maybe... It's called the pursuit of happiness because happiness is not something which can ever really be had. It's only something that can be chased after. This was certainly the experience of Solomon, king of Israel, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Let me sum it up for you in just a, just a little bit here. It tells the story of Solomon and his pursuit of happiness. What's the key to life, Solomon was asking. And he said, I know it's women. Women, that's the key to happiness. That is the key to life. And so he gathered for himself 1,000 concubines of the most beautiful women in the kingdom. But after a while, he realized that that wasn't the answer to what he was really looking for. He was still empty inside. Women hadn't given him the deep and abiding joy and happiness that he desired. And finally, he got to the end of it and said, you know what? It's all vanity. I thought that that would be what satisfied me, but it wouldn't. It didn't. It's vanity. So he, he continued to search for happiness. He said, okay, I know what it is. I know what's missing in my life. Partying. That's what it is. I need to just have fun. And so he threw elaborate parties. Wine. Everything was flowing. He, it, it was so elaborate that he imported exotic animals, baboons and peacocks from Africa. He brought them in to entertain his guests. But after years of partying, he still found himself empty. And he said, this too is vanity. And he said, I know what it is. It's not, it's not partying. It's not women. Here's what it is. It's power. That's what really fulfills a person. That would sa- that's what would satisfy my longing for happiness. And so he expanded the borders of his empire farther than those of any other empire of that time. And yet still, he was unsatisfied. And he said, this too is vanity. And then he turned his attention to philosophy and knowledge. But that didn't do it for him either. It didn't fill that desire for happiness that he had. And so he tried money. He thought, I'll work as hard as I can to collect as much money as I can, and then I'll be possible. And it tells us that he collected so much money that the value of gold in Israel devalued because there was just so much of it. It was so abundant. He was so wealthy, and he still wasn't happy. And he said, this too is vanity. He was one of the only men in all of history who had the means, the ability to try everything that people think and say, if I only had that, then I would be happy. Romance, power, knowledge, fun, money. He had them all in full measure. He took them all to the end. And yet he still didn't find what he was looking for. None of these things could give him the happiness that he desired or the joy that he longed for. And the book of Ecclesiastes, for that reason, is a difficult one for many people. They read it and they say, this is incredibly depressing. And they're like, I'm confused. What is the point? Because the whole point of the book is, well, this is vanity and that's a waste of time. And I thought this would make me happy, but it didn't. And the end. 
right? And people are like, well, wait a second. Aren't you going to tell us the answer? Aren't you going to give us the answer? Are you just going to say it's all vanity? That's depressing. Why don't you tell us the answer to what, what will satisfy us? And people read this story and they say, where's the conclusion? And I'm here to tell you the conclusion is not even in that book itself. It, it leaves you with a cliffhanger. Kind of like when you get to the end of a season of some TV show and they just leave this cliffhanger and you have to wait for like six months to find out what's going to happen next. That's what he did, only you didn't have to wait for six months. You had to wait like a thousand years until Jesus came, right? The answer isn't given to us in that book. All it's given us is the problem. The problem is nothing in this life will ever give you the happiness and satisfaction that you desire. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is to give us a cliffhanger, to leave us with a sense of frustration and say, well, if nothing in this world can satisfy me, nothing in the world can satisfy my longing for happiness in my heart, then what can? And the answer is found in Jesus. In Jesus who tells the woman at the well, this woman who's been pursuing happiness in relationships with men but never satisfied just moving from one man onto the next and onto the next continually looking for that thing which she's lacking and Jesus comes to her and tells her, you are thirsty inside and I am the water of life. I am the only thing which can quench the deep inner thirst that you have. To people who are mourning the death of their loved one, Jesus comes to them and he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. He says, I am the bread of life, the only thing which can deeply satisfy the cosmic hunger within you. And how? Because one day, those who are citizens of his kingdom, through faith in him, he will call us home and he will transform these lowly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. What he's speaking about is redemption. Ultimately, this pursuit of happiness that we all have, this desire that we have for this, this deep inner hunger, it's not something which can be fulfilled with anything in this world. The pursuit of happiness which all of us are actively involved in, it is nothing less than the pursuit, the desire for redemption. And that's why the Bible tells us that the reason for that is that this world which was created good has been corrupted by sin. Sin has touched and distorted and twisted everything, including us. And yet, we have these kind of ancestral memories of where we came from and this longing to return there. And that's why C.S. Lewis, he says that the deep longings of the human heart, they're glimmers. That's all they are. They're glimmers. They are, they are faint tastes of what we long for, but that's all they are. Glimmers and tastes. He says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or when we think of some foreign country or we th see something beautiful in nature or when we take up the subject that excites us for the first time. He says, the thing is, those things excite, they stir up something in us, but there is no marriage, no travel, no sunset, no learning which can ever satisfy those longings. You see, there was something that we grasped at in that moment, that first moment of longing which fades away in the reality. And he says, I know that everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The, the hotels and the scenery may be excellent. The job may be a very interesting job, but something will always evade us. And he says there are, there are two ways that people generally deal with this. On the one hand, some people, like Solomon, think that the answer is more and better. More vacations, more parties, more money, more stuff, more hotels, nicer car, bigger house. But like Solomon, in the end, they're going to end up at that point where it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fill the hole. The other approach is to become cynical and say, well, maybe my expectations are just too high. 
I need to lower my expectations. I need to suppress that desire for that infinite happiness. But there is a third approach, and that is the Christian approach. And that's what Paul's talking about here at the end of Philippians. The Christian approach is to say this, if I find within myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only real conclusion is this, that I was not made for this world. And these good things here on earth, the, the, the beauty, the sunsets, the, the joy, they're only a glimmer. They're just a taste. They'll never be able to satisfy those desires. Rather, what they do is they arouse those desires because the fullness, though, is only found in heaven. And if that is the case, then first of all, we should never despise these earthly blessings. We should love, we should celebrate the beauty in this life, but we should understand what it is. That the most beautiful sunset, that the greatest relationship, that these things are only a copy, only an echo, only a mirage of the real thing which awaits us in heaven. And so what do we do? How should knowing the future affect how we live in the present? It should cause us to press on to keep alive within ourselves the desire for our true country and to make the main object of our lives to press on to that country and help others to do the same. So let me encourage you today, press on. Encourage that sense of dissatisfaction with where you're at. Satisfaction in Jesus that is so great that it causes you dissatisfaction that you don't have more of him in your life. Secondly, take your focus off of what lies behind you. Press forward towards the goal for what God has for you next. Race cars don't have backup cameras. And since you know what the future holds, that heaven and hell are real, make the main object of your life to press on towards heaven and help others to do the same. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this hope of the gospel. We thank you for this hope that these things that we long for, this happiness that we desire, Lord, it isn't just a something which will never be fulfilled, but is something which will be fulfilled ultimately in heaven. Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes on there, to remember where our citizenship is, and to bring others with us on the way. But I pray for anybody here today who that message of the heaven is real and, and not everybody's going there. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today who would say, you know what, I'm not sure that if I were to die today that I would go to heaven. Lord, I pray for them today that they would turn to you now in their heart and say, Lord, I want to receive your grace. I, I renounce my old ways. I renounce sin. I renounce my own self-sufficiency, thinking that I'm fine on my own. And I say, Lord, come and save me. I want to know you as my all-satisfying joy, something that is so satisfying to me that it causes dissatisfaction in my heart that I don't have more of it. Lord, would you do that in our hearts today? Would you help us to be those people that Paul describes who race after the goal of knowing you and living our whole lives for you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.